0: A quick disclaimer Opinions of host and guest do not represent the views or opinions of functional movement systems. Always consult your physician before beginning any exercise program. This general information is not intended to replace your healthcare professional. Welcome to the Movement Podcast. This show is all about movement. We tackle it from different angles, bring on guests, answer questions, go on a few tangents, and give practical advice, giving you guys a better idea of how you can optimize the human body to be the best it can be. Let's preview what's coming up in this episode. From those starting a weight loss journey to ultra marathon athletes running is one of the most popular choices of exercise it's also one of the most common causes for injury with over 50 percent of regular runners getting hurt each year for our season two finale we explore running from shoe selection to running technique to over pronation and can it be fixed we discuss runners injuries and how to avoid them the importance of a runner's upper body cross training and much more so let's start our sprint to the finish of season two with today's movement podcast powered by fms
1: Most common form of exercise, Gray. You know, most people probably won't think, think what it actually is, and that's walking. Right. And then what do, we, what do people do when they start walking? They get, eh, it's not bad. They start running. Absolutely. And then after they start running a while, what typically happens? They meet a physical therapist or chiropractor. <laughs> right? They get hurt. <laughs> or so. ibuprofen becomes a breakfast food. <laughs> exactly. Because you know, the, the thing about ibuprofen is it works.
2: Right, so they think. Well, now I'm gonna run again today. Right so up until good. the total knee, <laughs> and then it don't work anymore.
1: But why is that? Why is it? Why is it the most common form of exercise out there? I mean, Nike has built their entire business on running and walking.
2: There's a great book written by Christopher McDougall called Born to Run, and it talks about that that in early human civilization, uh, you know, running was the locomotion. It was the way we hunted. It was the way we traveled. But it's not the way we do it today. And and that book unfolds a, a a unique history of running that that I think everybody should look into before they just strap on the next gear and, and go out and do it. And the one thing we learn in that book is Nike uh started with a with a track coach and a shoe innovation, and shoes were flat. They were running slippers right up until then. And all of a sudden jogging became the craze. And the difference in running and jogging is true running is more of a midfoot strike, and jogging is bang your heel and if it hurts we'll just give you more cushioning and that's where the wheels fell off well wasn't it dr cooper really is what put running at one of the forefronts back in the 80s when he
1: came out and said you got to run 20 minutes of car- cardio right you know cardio was the big thing and then running is easy i mean right running you don't need equipment what's your you excuse <laughs> yeah you don't need you don't need anything to go out and start running and then of course you walk into a typical gym
2: this these days and first thing you see is a row of 10 treadmills and 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 running is to a treadmill like fixed access exercise equipment is to Olympic weightlifting. One is 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 it it's not it's not really real running on a treadmill. Yes, you are doing the motion, but it really bothers me when somebody's initial analysis of your running starts from standing behind you on a treadmill. And I'm probably offending some biomechanists and PhDs out there, but I'm old and I don't care. (laughs) Well, I don't really care either uh, what you you say half the time either, so it doesn't matter.
1: Um, But when you start talking about the, you get into the biomechanics of running and and you mentioned something that's interesting when you start talking about running um, when you're getting chased by somebody, which is what, you know, you're either chasing, trying to track down your food is is what you got started off, the born to run, or you're getting chased by something and you're running, um, or you're just out for a jog. There's definitely differences in in how you strike
2: and what goes on in your body, right? There there is. And one of the the things that was relevant to me in the book Born to Run is sort of the barefoot running craze, or at least the minimalist footwear. And if you're having to buy a shoe to supplement your biomechanical errors, are you sure that they're permanent? If you have poor ankle mobility and it will change, you may not need the overpronation control because most people don't understand overpronation and ankle mobility go hand in hand. A stiff ankle requires you to have a sloppy foot. All right, let's back up. So All I'm right. going to interrupt you here. Why do people get injured
1: running? Because uh, that's what that's what that's what everybody wants to know. Why, why am I? Why do I get hurt? Why do I get hurt running? To, Is that a bad question? Can you give me a one sentence, one sentence answer?
2: They're unprepared to run the volume and intensity that they think they should
1: be running. So there, therein lies a lot of the issue that most people, most people when they start running, they start getting good at it. When I say good at it, their body is starting to become acclimated. They're, they're doing what their body does, right? It's no different than going in and lifting weights. You're going to break the body down. You're going to build it back up. But the problem is running is such an easy exercise to do. They don't give their body a chance to recover.
2: And it's so easy to do. It's really easy to do it wrong. Running is one of those things, just like weightlifting, where people assume quality and pursue quantity, and it should be the other way around. Right. And then,
1: you know, talking about the injuries, it is volume and intensity. So, you know, a lot of this, these subtle things that you were getting into, ankle mobility, maybe not enough core stabilization, because it's not just about foot strike. I mean, your foot's going to do what it needs to do to com- to uh, compress the forces that you're putting in it, and if you don't have good hip stability, or even core stabilization, then your foot's got to figure something out and it's got to overpronate. It's got to do all those things biomechanically to absorb the shock. And it may not be your foot at all. So you can get by with that when you start running. But as you can increase the volume and intensity, you can't get, get away with it. So we can blame volume and intensity, but it could be something else.
2: You could be bringing problems to it, and one of the things I did for myself is I really tried to embrace that and say, okay, if I'm not relying on a shoe to compensate, and I do a minimalist run, a zero shoe or a sandal run or even barefoot on appropriate surface, the very first thing I'm going to do is go, ooh, that hurts. Slow down. Still hurts. Slow down a little bit more. Okay, but now I'm not going fast enough. Apparently you are. <laughs> what
1: but what you're getting into here, Gray, is something you've been talking about for a while, and that's self-limiting. Exactly. And the whole thing about self-limiting is trying to create that internal gauge. But most people's internal gauge is trying to sit over here all the way to the right. They want a red line, right? Everybody, most people, especially when running, when you start running, you get that dose of um, adrenaline. The, the, you, know, you start feeling good about it. A few days into it, man, I feel great but then they start doing a little too much. So it's that self-limiting aspect that I, I'd like you to speak to, how they can incorporate that a little bit more.
2: Yeah, endorphins work whether you have good or bad Endorphins, te- there you go. Mm-hmm. That's what I was looking for. I'm not that smart. <laughs> endorphins work whether you do good technique or bad technique because you do hit that that cardiovascular stimulation, that, that deeper breathing. But when people look at their cardiovascular ranges, Depending on what kind of monitoring device you do, most people try to run in that mid-range. And the very first time I went minimalist shoe and said, I'm going to run in my lowest cardio range. And you know it's easy. 180 minus your age is going to put me you know around 130 or something like that. I went out running and I'm like, oh my gosh, I just ran a 14-minute mile. That sucks. But I was coming off my neck surgery and I'm like, but it didn't hurt. And I think I can go another mile. And the very first time I listened to my body, I ran four miles without discomfort and without pain, and I didn't listen to music. It was almost, I found my slot. And I've always loved paddleboarding. When I look at my heart rate paddleboarding, no matter how hard I hit it, I stay in a really low cardio range, which is almost empowering. And you don't hurt the next day. And so I said, even though this is a disrespectful running cadence and time and everything, I actually enjoyed running. And so I I taught myself how to run after my neck surgery just because so many other forms of exercise weren't an option. Cycling put me in a bad posture and I couldn't do anything with a kettlebell. So I just started walking, but I just leaned forward a little bit. And I, it looks like an old man shuffle, but if you look at barefoot runners, they have this nice- Nobody thing. wants to see you run. I, and I that's can, why I do I it in the woods. I guarantee that. <laughs> that's why I do it in the woods, man. It's nobody's <laughs> business how I run. Yeah,
1: but-, but- Part of what you're saying is self-limiting. You're talking about minimalist shoes. You didn't say barefoot. And I think that's, that was a big thing. I'd almost say it was, it's kind of got, gotten over the hump. It was huge when that book came out, right? Everybody was going barefoot. And not everybody needs to go barefoot.
2: At least not start barefoot. Maybe, again, work yourself into it. It's almost like if you go out and try to split wood for three hours without gloves, your hands are going to rip up before your back gets tired. And so your hands and your feet are your interface with the world. And if we look at a thing called the homunculus, and that's the map of your brain, you got more neurological sensation dedicated to your hands and feet than you do to your legs and arms. That means this is my interface. That's my interface. And so if you don't have time to get a little callus on your hand, you're never going to split wood like you should, and if you don't have time to toughen and strengthen your feet, you're never going to run like you're supposed to. That's the problem. Somebody, somebody um, who has
1: the the real Nike's running shoe now. I mean, I'm wearing a pair right now where you've got a lot of a lot of structure around your foot that's supporting your foot and your ankle. Go from that to running barefoot. It's just it's not going to work. You're going to have problems, and you're going to break down. And I think that's where don't expect yourself if you're going to go from a Go, go to a minimalist shoe that don't expect to do the same thing you're doing with your typical running shoe. And I think that's the point you would want, you would want to make, right? It's not – doing a minimalist shoe is great. It's going to, it's going to be a better foot strike. But, but don't expect to go out and run a 5K if you go, go that. You keep your mileage down, keep your volume and intensity down, and slowly build it back up. Give your body a chance to recover, not just your heart, your entire body.
2: No, I I saw the same thing when I entered the world of kettlebell. We all show up, and everybody goes and grabs the kettlebell you think is appropriate. So the big guys grab the cannonballs with handles, right? And the one thing you didn't know is that you got to do 100 swings. If, had I known the volume ahead of time, but Pavel and Brett Jones let that happen. They let you go and bite more than you could chew. And, and then all of a sudden, you don't make it through the round or something like that. And so we as Americans will always overshoot and overconsume and and then wonder what happened. And it's because we're privileged and we sit a lot and we see something on TV and we think that's us. And you're a spectator of most of these things. And it doesn't mean you can get there, but that's not where the person you're watching started. Why do you think you're going to start there? And I think too often people assume to get their cardiovascular endurance up, they've
1: got to go out and run or they got to walk. Those are easy things to do. As we said, there's no equipment. Anybody can do it. And for some people, it's great but running's not for everybody and not everybody should be expected to go out there and be a good runner. Um, That's not to say running is bad. There's a lot of people out there that can run and and it's great. And I go back to the fact of most everybody gravitates to what they're good at and they don't want to do what they're bad at. And I think that's something that we all need to look at and figure out if I'm going to exercise and gray, we're in the world of trying to make people more healthy and more fit. And it's up to the professionals to give some advice and it's up to us as individuals to try to find out where we can fit where what best suits us
2: yes. and i think that's important and and you know i was studying breathing back when we were developing the breathing course and Kyle Kiesel did that for us and 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 i really think that was a good journey to go on and I found two ends of the same conversation. One was a chiropractor named Phil Maffetone, and the other was uh, Wem Hoff, who was extremely popular and probably still is. And they're both getting into breathing. What Phil Maffetone pretty much said is, listen, do 180 minus your age and go and see how much distance you can cover in a half hour. And what you'll find out is you will go out and run, and your heart rate will immediately cross the limit I just gave you. So walk. And then when it drops below the limit I gave you, run. And what you'll find is you don't know how to find your slot. You're running and walking. But in two weeks, you will have learned how to breathe and run at a cadence that you could continue in a sustainable way. And what we've learned by the running hobby of most Americans is running's not sustainable because runners are some of the most injured recreational athletes in the world. And there's no contact except you in the ground. There's no excuse. And yet, they're injured so... Are they biting off more than they can chew? And are they pursuing quantity before quality? And the answer is yes to both. And when we see things like the straps and knee braces and puffed up shoes, these are just enabling devices. Training wheels don't make you a cyclist. <laughs> no, I think that's a great, great word right there. Enabling is I think that's too often
1: is you're going to do what The runners that we've come in contact with that have come through our clinic and we've worked with, they, they have to get out there and run. And if you tell a runner not to run, it's taking their little blanket away from them. And I think sometimes that's what needs to happen is you've got to take those enabling devices away and build yourself back up to be more resilient so you can keep running when you're 75 years old. But you've got to find that that balance. I think balance is the key because so many people think or assume that's one of the best ways to get your cardiovascular endurance. And there's many ways to get that in.
2: You In, in clinic a, a while back, we actually worked with a therapist and you'll probably remember um He would go out for a run at lunch, and his leg raise and toe touch wouldn't be great, but it wouldn't be horrible. He'd come back from a run, and his mobility would actually be worse. Now, from a functional movement standpoint, if your movement screen goes down, and we're not going to blame it on fatigue, okay? because most people should demonstrate the same amount of flexibility before... A run. Now there are certain lifts and max moves that you might not. But why should running rob your mobility? He would come back and could barely get to his kneecaps. That tells me he was using everything wrong. But he was the fastest guy in the clinic, just not forever and not for long. So, so a lot of things you get that those endorphins, and you get that positive feedback from your GPS and your your run monitor. But at the same time, you're slowly eroding and you don't realize it. But one of the quick behaviors that shouldn't get worse after a run is you shouldn't be tighter, less mobile, and have poor balance after a run. And if you do, you just ran through your reserve and into something that's not going to reset itself for 48 hours.
1: Yeah, I think one of the studies... Um- One of the studies I read a while back is before a race or a 10 K or maybe in a marathon, 45% of the people were in pain at the start. So at the start of a race, a competitive event, 45 people were already in pain. So that tells me right there, they'll get through it. People will get through it. People have people, you know, we're resilient. (laughs) Humans are pretty damn resilient, right? So we'll get through it. But over again, it's that, it's that longevity, That we have to get, we have to get, stop thinking in the health and fitness industry, in the health and fitness world, stop thinking of now and start thinking long term. Because if you're already in pain, you and I both agree, you're already hurt. And going out and pounding the pavement when you're already hurt is not gonna help you.
2: Well, you know, there's a, I heard, I think John Terrain say this, please leave a little cheese on the cracker. What he meant by that is if you work out so hard that you're moving worse after the workout, then you survived it but it's not going to make you thrive. You're slowly creating a debt that you will have to repay all at once. And so recognizing that debt early, what's a great way? Heart rate variability. Did you get back to your resting heart rate? Are you hydrated? And did you get some good sleep? Next layer, did your move- is your movement screen getting worse because of your workout? And if it is, that's an indicator. You know, Is your performance slowly dropping? At the fitness level, that's an indicator. So if any of these things are in play, listen, because that's pain is a signal that basically tells your body there's a disharmony here. And even though in modern society, you can cover it up, that don't make it right.
0: Yeah. So in summary, you know, runners are some of the most resilient, gritty athletes that I think are out there because they, you know, they... March through however many miles that they need to get through, no matter what they truly feel like. And so I feel like sometimes they, you know, they proclaim themselves as good runners because they have a good cardiorespiratory response. You know, they, um, they're, they get the endorphins from the, from the breathing, they feel good afterwards sooner. And so they're telling themselves, I'm getting good at this because those things are getting easier. Basically, I don't hate this as much as I used to. <laughs> so... With that said, you know, we we put these these clouds on our feet. We take ibuprofen in the morning when we wake up. We wear um compression, you know, socks and we try to alleviate shin splints and and other issues that may come up with this longer form of running that they think they're really good at, but they're ultimately in pain. So, you know, going back to that novice runner who's not hating it as much as they used to, like currently, What's the first thing that you think they should pay attention to to make them actually a good runner and not just a just a good, you know, person that that wakes up early and works out and has a a decent cardio response? Like what's what's the first step?
2: Well, well, Ashley, if if you had you know, limited experience with kettlebells and you really wanted to go deep, the first thing you do is seek somebody who was respected or certified in kettlebells. Same thing with yoga, same thing with martial arts. Now you can go on the internet and try to figure these things out, but a true coach will get you there. If you go to what I would consider a thorough running coach or speed development coach, If they go right to your running technique before they do some simple mobility and stability and cardiovascular assessment, then they're probably part of the problem. But most runners, as you said, are fiercely independent. They don't need mirrors. They don't need gyms. They don't need a workout of the day. And they don't need a group of people going rah-rah. They want to get in their head and go. And these people often restrict themselves from advice they don't want to hear. But isn't that what a coach is for? So they don't get coached.
0: And when it comes to a coach, if they put them on a treadmill to start looking at the run, would you would you say maybe go for the coach who's going to put you in a parking lot or a longer form yeah, so they on. can really Let, see let's a stance?
1: Let, let's let's just cut cut through the bullshit here. Nobody that's out there is going to go seek out a coach to start running. But they right? do it for golf. But well, no, I don't. I don't seek out. A, I mean, I'm a recreational golfer. But if you should, but that, <laughs> but I'm just saying. The reality is, I know you're not. So what's the advice you would give somebody who is, you know, I mean, listen, most people that are running don't seek out a professional at okay. all. Okay. Most people that exercise don't seek out a professional at all. We all agree they should, but they don't. All and right. I think that's the problem is why when somebody starts exercising, 60% of the people get injured during exercise. So what should they do? All right.
2: Self-limiting, meaning don't make it so easy and stay in a lower energy expenditure. And if those two things aren't helping you right away, and, and right away means in about two weeks, okay, at least dedicate four sessions mm-hmm. to a minimalistic dependence on equipment and a lower cardiovascular range. It's not going to impress your ego, but if you wake up and you can touch your toes and you don't feel like you right, that's
1: them. All right, that's more realistic. Because yeah. most people aren't going to check their heart rates. Right. Most people aren't going to check, you know, find out, okay, most people aren't going to spend the money to get the devices. We all want to wish they would, but they're not. So I think something as simple as, yeah, can you stand on one foot? Can you balance? Obviously we would want them to go get a functional movement screen, right? But if they wake up in the morning, they can't touch their toes. Maybe they shouldn't go running today.
2: No, you hit the nail on the head. If you can't deep squat, as to grass yeah. without discomfort. If you can't touch your toes effortlessly, and if you can't balance on one foot for about 20 seconds, eyes open and 10 seconds, eyes closed, then do whatever you got to do to get those things before you worry about running. Right. And maybe. if you can't get them by yourself, right. there's people And it involved. doesn't
1: mean they can't run that week. You know, that's the, I think that's the fundamental message of what we try to tell everybody, right? doesn't mean you can't go running this week. Hey, but maybe not running today or tomorrow. Maybe walk, maybe do something different. And I think from my my advice to runners, if you're a recreational runner and you love running, just mix it up. Just mix it up. Don't feel like you've got to run a 5K every day,
2: right? No, and and I think, you know what? If somebody just needs general advice, blending your running with yoga— is great. If you need a little more, blending your running with Turkish get-ups, meaning if a Turkish get-up gives you struggling, I'm not saying do it with weight. I'm saying if you can't even get through that fluid motion, you've got an asymmetry, you've got a mobility stability problem, why not dedicate equal time to that? And there's two things I often see runners really struggle with, and that's walking down a balance beam and deep squatting. Right. So uh, it's no different than
1: somebody going and deadlifting or squatting heavy today. You deadlift and squat heavy today, you're not going to deadlift and squat heavy tomorrow. You're going to give yourself a couple of days. So, if I'm going to go out and run a, a 5K today, me personally, I could get through it, but I'm damn sure not going to do it more, a couple more days this week. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think that's the thing. If, if you know what, you got to, you, you know, maybe sprint, do some sprint, do some intervals. Um, just don't feel like you got to run, you know. Ten miles every day. Well,
2: and, and that's our thing. Sometimes because we're a sedentary society and we only have small packages of activity, so much of our active identity is tied up in one activity and not this global ability to do what you want. And 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 that's what we want, that's what we want for everybody is is be able to do what you want, but know your limits in each place. And now you know what to work on. And that's, that's a cool journey.
1: That's, I mean, that's, that kind of goes back to what I was saying. People gravitate to what they like. And if you start walking and you really like walking and you get to where you're starting to run and you really like running, great. But if you want to continue running, you better mix it up and do something else because eventually you're going to end up with the tightness, tight hamstrings, the tight ankles, the tight gastroxoleus, the tight calves. You're going to end up that way and you're not going to be able to touch your toes if that's all you do.
2: I asked myself a question after my neck surgery and running was one of my few light cardio options. I said, do you not like running because you do it wrong or you're not built for it? And all my life, it was easy to say, well, I'm not built like a runner, but it was very humbling for me to say, I'm doing it wrong. And the minute I slowed down and paid attention to what I was doing. And I, I really don't like running on a track or hard surface. So I started doing trail runs. Number one, I like that environment better. Number two, it mixes it up. I'm ADHD. If I see the same thing more than twice in a minute, I'm going the other way. And so I picked an environment I could run in, and I gave my per self-permission to walk whenever I wanted. And before you know it, I didn't walk as much, and I ran more, but not nearly as fast and not nearly as wrong as I was doing before. So I was running wrong, thinking I had structural problems when I had functional problems. Yeah, hey, you just didn't want to run. I've seen you run pretty ugly. <laughs> Thank you. It's just like being at home. You and Mrs. Cook are the best things for my ego. Oh, yeah. the, the-
0: so earlier you mentioned overpronation and ankle mobility kind of go hand in hand, you know, bad, like a sloppy foot is what you said, actually, mm-hmm. specifically. So could you go dive a little deeper into that?
2: Yeah, it's it's not absolute. And so you're getting a phone call in about seven minutes saying, well, I have great ankle mobility. I'm a pronator. Yeah, you're an outlier. You're, you're the 20%. The 80% is most of the time we have sloppiness in our body without a previous dislocation or joint you know problem it's usually because you have stiffness somewhere else so you make that uh compensation and so we see stiff ankles in runners in a in a majority and and that's one thing the movement screen has taught us and actually ankle mobility is a risk factor for musculoskeletal injuries whether you're a runner or not because that's a platform so when you go to a shoe store or when you read articles and you hear about overpronators people say well I'm an overpronator like I got scoliosis, like it's permanent and it's never going to change. Well, if you got a weak rotator cuff, that'll change. If you got a sloppy core, that'll change. If you're an overpronator and do everything else right and don't force your body to overpronate because overpronation is a great way to pick up five extra degrees of dorsiflexion. And overpronation and valgus collapse are two sides of the same penny. So all the things we love talking about as if we're afflicted with cancer, or 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 a, a biomechanical deformity. We talk about these functional problems as if they won't budge. So we start doing shoes that keep you from pronating. Right. Well how are you ever going to get, you know, a stable foot? I mean, how are you going to become a deadlifter if you never give up your back brace? And so I'm not saying you can't use these tools as transitions because if you're an overpronator and all you want to do is start walking, then start walking in a safe way. But if your next pair of shoes Is the same set of training wheels? How are you ever going to be a biker? So what I'm saying is you can pick the on-ramp you want, but as long as you're enabling your problem, it will become a permanent problem. But if you see overpronation, just like another form of core weakness or shoulder weakness, and you remove all your reasons for it, before you know it, yeah, you'll have tendencies toward pronation, but you don't have to do it. And now you'll find I don't pronate till mile three. Maybe that's your limit. So there's so many cool things. And when Mike Boyle and I did that joint by joint, my whole point is, if you're a pronator with a stiff ankle, then you're not a pronator. You're a compensator. And if you're a pronator with a perfect body, then yeah, you you probably got some foot stuff going on. Well, I think what you're to, it's not as simple
1: as saying, this is your problem. You know, I mean, if somebody's going to walk in and, and they're going to get on the treadmill. They're going to, you know, somebody's going to say, wow, you, you over pronate. And then they're going to. You know, they're going to go go send them to see somebody to build an orthotic for them, and then they're going to build up their shoe, and they're going to, you know, have basically a crutch Mm -hmm. in their shoe, right? But the pronation is a result of something else going on. That's really what you're getting at, Gray. It's not as simple as looking at your foot and saying, if we fix your foot, everything else will be fine. Well, your foot very well could be taking care of what's wrong somewhere else, and you could track it to the—you could even track it up in the upper body. You got thoracic mobility issues, you got cervical spine issues. And, uh, you know, the thing that we try to do is find the underlying mm-hmm. cause of why you pronate. And then, because if you don't, if you don't find the underlying cause, you're talking about ankle mobility. if they got a lack of ankle mobility, that could still be the result of something else. So you got to trace it all the way back, and that's where it gets complicated. And that's why we say you've got to figure out
2: the underlying cause because you can't just put a band aid on the problem. And so, a long time ago, we just tried to simplify that. And if you're a runner and you get a movement screen and you've got ones, work on them. Because runners without ones have way less problems than runners who have ones. It's, it's that simple. And what a one means is you're not covering the range of motion for your body in one rep. Okay? It's not about fatigue or anything. You can't even get a C on a movement competency test, and yet you're doing one of the higher level abilities that most humans aspire to. So do me a favor, change your oil, (laughs) check your tires before you go on a trip. It's just- What's
1: one of the most common injuries runners have? Knee. Knee, hamstring tightness, because they're all going to come in, they're going to complain about my knees are killing me, and they're going to complain about my hamstrings are too tight, stretch me out. But both of those things are a result of problems somewhere else. They're the symptom of the
2: issue. They are, and- and the like you said, humans are resilient. We'll figure out a way to compensate and we'll figure out a way to compensate really hard for things that we love. So, when we say stop running, we have that emotional response. It's like I, I said in a lecture one time, I put up this don't walk sign on every street corner in New York City. How many times have you ever seen a skeleton under that sign? Nobody just didn't walk forever. So, I mean, the traffic stopped and you got your go sign, but when people come, to the athletic trainer, physical therapist, chiropractor, and we say, hey, stop running. All it means is turn your car off so we can we can check a few things. And all of a sudden, we get this emotional response. You can't take that away from me. I'm like, I don't want to. I just want to basically slow it down so we can see what's going on and rebuild you because the way you're built to run now is not sustainable. It's not going to end good. And some of these
1: things we, we've mentioned, the orthotics, the straps, the braces, the the, the tape, we use those things. I remember years ago, Gray, I was the one building orthotics in the clinic for everybody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but they, they are, you should exhaust other or have or fix the problems that you know, and then use, or, use an orthotic or use a strap as a way to kind of onboard you back to where you need to be. And if the orthotic needs to be con- a continual thing, great. But don't let that be the thing that enables
2: you to continue running t- a 10K. And, you know, I do remember this. We made this decision a long time ago. We had these very inexpensive, semi-rigid orthotics that we would always hand patients first. The last thing I want to do is build you a permanent orthotic or permanent brace when I think there's functional latitude here. We can move you to a better place. So one of the things that we made, uh, I think you and I and Kyle talked about this, until we get somebody's squat to an acceptable level, even if you did need a rigid orthotic or an orthotic. Until we get your squat fixed, we're not giving you one because if we didn't fix your squat first, then you're still using pronation for dorsiflexion. So we're going to build you a $300 orthotic and you're going to come back and tell me the arch is too high. No, it's not too high. It fits what you need to be doing, but you're still using pronation. So you're banging off the orthotic instead of getting ankle mobility. The minute you can squat, if I lock up your arch, you'll have to keep using your ankle in a constructive way again.
1: And I think the one thing you hit on, you don't assume the, art, the orthotic is going to fix the fix everything, right? No. I mean, you still have to go through and make sure. I mean, I made that mistake more times than I can count. Some of these athletes come in, their pronation is horrible. They really pronated, stick them in orthotic and they're walking around with a golf ball in their shoe. Yeah. The next thing they come in to see me, they got shin splints. Yeah. So now I've only created a bigger problem. So I think that's the thing is we need to almost even build them back up, like maybe give them a little bit, but take something away. So if I, if I you know, have to go out and run, somebody's got to run, they're, they're training for a, a 10K or something, maybe use tape, maybe use an orthotic, but slowly peel it back. And that's one thing that we were doing is we may build them up, but then we'd
2: slowly take some of that stuff away. So, so it goes back to one of my original conflicted talks. Do you think this is a part problem or do you think this is a pattern problem? And 80% of the time, I think pronation is just the most obvious part of a lot of bad patterns. It's not a broken foot until somebody who has done both head to toe and foot analysis tells you it is. And there are things you can do to help strengthen your foot.
1: I mean, we, we keep talking about pronation. Pronation is basically when your foot flattens out, right? You you're stand up and you're, you, know, you're, you don't have an arch. You're pretty much flat. Your foot is flattening out. If you lift your foot up, a lot of people, when they lift their foot up and do a single leg stance, they have an arch, mm-hmm. which tells me there is room to improve that foot um, strength. And there's you know, short foot posturing. The old, the old exercise that, that gets, you see everywhere with straps, pull the, pull the strap around your knee and pull your knee into valgus where your knee caves in. Well, the first thing that happens, your foot grabs the ground. That's strengthening your foot. I would argue that has just as much influence on what's happening to help your squat out is what's going on in your hip. And everybody wants to talk about what's going on in the glute, but that's actually helping your foot give you better input is what you talked about earlier.
2: You and I both know that that reduced grip strength is a risk factor for overall health. A, A weak hand is actually a thin slice of a weak upper body, a neck problem, a shoulder issue, because you will only allocate that strength to your hand that the rest of the system can handle. Why don't anybody talk about weak feet that way? Because I can put people on a balance beam who walk into our fitness workshops that look like a a fitness model, and 10 minutes on a balance beam, and they're screaming. My, my feet can't handle this. Their feet are cramping. Their calves are cramping and stuff like that. We just exposed a weak foot. What is one of the best tests that we have in our arsenal
1: that nobody knows about that tests your balance and tests your foot? That's the Y-Balance test. Yeah. And nobody really knows about it. Nobody hears about it. But that forward reach is checking your balance, is checking your ability to really control. And when we say check your balance, it starts at your foot. You've got, your foot's got to really grab the ground in order for you to be able to do. And again, what is one thing about FMS in general, when we say movement systems, is we're not putting a microscope on your foot.
2: No. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's unnecessary to put a microscope on any body, any single body part, unless you have a previous medical history, you have a lot of pain, it's better to, to treat or train you as a global functional unit and work on your worst postures and patterns. And believe it or not, all those weak parts, they just, they just start to get better. When when my family, I took my pregnant wife and two daughters to do the nap thing. We were doing the natural movement thing in the mountains of West Virginia. We were barefoot for an entire week. By the end of the week, I was running barefoot on gravel, but I didn't have calluses on my feet. I desensitized my feet, they weren't even stronger. I just learned how to use my foot. And if your foot is always covered up, so I'm not saying people got to go out and do that. What I'm saying is, I realized how weak my feet were. But how much they could change in a single week, long before my feet adapted, they actually responded to the input. And the foot is still a sensory organ. And when you say people are an overpronator, they're actually looking to get more foot on the ground to feel the ground better. And we noticed this in a gymnastic study. The thicker the mat the gymnast lands on, the worse their landing is because they're pushing through the mat for stability. But if you give them just a minimalist mat... They stick the landing better if they're prepared for it. So reducing that enabling thing often fosters greater function and less, less compensation, less substitution and stuff like that. So it's okay to use what you need, but if you're not on a constant weaning away of all these supportive devices, you got training wheels, calling yourself a cyclist.
0: Alright, let's take a break, and when we return, we'll go deeper with the guys on the importance of a runner's upper body, cross-training, and a common issue that affects some female runners. Performance is a goal for many clients and is the foundation for all skill-based sports and activities. The fundamental capacity screen is a straightforward, efficient, and repeatable method to measure four essential movement capacities. Motor control, postural control, explosive control, and input control are simply restated as the developmental movements of climbing, carrying, running, and jumping. Once movement competency is established with the functional movement screen, the FCS is the stepping stone between the functional movement patterns and skill-based coaching. The FCS demonstrates ways in which the four fundamental capacities affect sport and physical activity and provides a baseline measure enabling professionals to know where to focus training to reach higher goals. Get started today and find a course near you. So I think a lot of people, when they think about running, they think about the lower body. And that's what we've talked a lot about today. But what about the upper body and like midline core area? Like how does that impact your running style or, you know, potentially, you know, other things that affect your running?
2: When, when we started with the movement screen, we started back at the developmental progression. And one of the things that emerges right after rolling is crawling. And that means you're sinking the right arm with the left leg. That's running. Your hands just aren't on the ground anymore and when we see the best runners in the world there's this perfect sync of one side arm opposite side leg it creates a little bit of rotation in the core and it's actually using the upper body as a postural advantage secondly when you're rotating you can't be slouched forward when you're slouched forward you can't breathe as much So runners get more lung capacity by having a mobile upper body and a reciprocal gait. And so I can help your airway, your oxygen, and your biomechanics just by making sure you don't have an upper body restriction. And then what you also said is core. We see a lot of runners that score very low on the push-up. So even if you have a mobile upper and lower body, you got a rubber drive shaft. They're not connected by anything that works. And so that instantaneous stability in your core is what transfers because believe it or not, when you run, your arm moves before your leg does. So I'm throwing this arm before this leg goes. So getting that little bit of energy to help that leg out has to go through jelly belly or nice rigid core. So there are things on the movement screen like the push up and upper body mobility and lunge tests that really show us do your upper body and lower body complement or contradict each other?
1: Ray, let's be honest. We're not running experts. But if you go to running experts, they're going to talk about posture. They're going to talk about, you know, make sure you're upright, making sure you have a good, what what goes on in your foot, your foot strike and all that. But they can talk about posture, but if you don't have the mobility in your upper body, because what do most people do all day long? They sit and they create poor posture. So it goes back to what you and I talk about all the time. It goes back to those fundamentals. If you don't have the fundamental and the foundation then all the things that a good running expert may want to prescribe may not even be on the table because you can't stand up straight. You can't just stand up straight. The only way to create better create a better airway is to do what with your head. Have that head pitch forward. So it's all those things that before we dive into the details of biomechanics
2: of running, if you can't do the basics, those you're not ready to do those other things. That's right. And and it's it's really neat. The the running analysis is necessary. We we want the running coach. But if you're coaching a running problem that's caused by something that makes you get a one on the movement screen, let me say this very clearly. That's a subconscious problem and you can't consciously correct it. Okay. As much as you want to squat deep, go ahead and try, go ahead and try. And there is more in your body saying, "Ah, eh, let's not squat. Okay. And, and there are a lot of triggers. there's there's avoiding pain. I've told people there's a lot of triggers that can keep you from squatting. Go eat two bowls of chili five minutes before squat day. You're not going deep. And even if you decide you want to, there's a lot of internal signals that says this isn't going to end well. So you can have abdominal distress. You can have poor digestion. You can have endometriosis. You can have many, many problems that'll actually shut down your core and keep you from doing what's right. Or you can have a one on the movement screen, but if you're coaching running technique and a one, they can't hear you they, because they're making this decision before their conscious brain is even there as a protective reflex, I guess.
1: Yeah. And it's, and all the, yeah, all the coaching and all the, you know, I, I, I put it equivalent to walking into the weight room and seeing a coach standing behind somebody, tell them to get their butt back in the squat. They can't, but what will they do? They'll get their head down and use their, use their spine no different than a runner. The runner's going to do it, right? You're going to do it if you're a runner. You're going to get out there, and you're going to pound the pavement and not really understand and know why you're you can, you know, you're not getting up and you're not in the right posture. And think about that. I mean, if you got poor shoulder mobility, you're a one on one side and, a, say, a two or three on the other. That poor shoulder mobility is that reciprocal pattern, and you can't move your right side as well as you move your left what does that then mean for your low back or your hip or your knee? And then you're going to come in. I'll come in to see you, Gray, and complain about my knee or my back. And lo and behold, it could be a shoulder problem that leads absolutely. me to have those issues. And that's why it gets complicated for people to connect those dots.
2: Well, and we didn't even see it coming until we started seeing a huge association with a knee injury. that was absolutely no lower body problem or asymmetry, but there was huge upper body asymmetry. And yet there's a correlation with upper body asymmetry, mobility, and knee injuries. And we didn't see it coming, but we were here to catch it when it got here and not try to defend it or talk it. This is what the movement screen said. Let's listen. And one of the most common things I would say, and this is just, this is a guess, my,
1: maybe my opinion, things that runners do is they'll foam roll. They'll take the stick and they'll roll the stick over their quads and their hamstrings. Because one of the most common injuries is knee pain. That knee pain can be traced to what? A trigger point in your quad, right? Right. So they'll be rolling everything out, but they're still only solving a symptom. They've got to look a little bit deeper because that same person may have a horrible single leg stance on the right and great single leg stance on the left. And maybe they're rolling out the left side because the left side's doing too much work because the right side's not doing enough.
2: Yeah. They're chasing the pain instead of understanding what what has to come. And it, it's unfortunate because when I see somebody foam rolling, if you've been sitting on a plane or you've had a hard workout, that foam roll can actually help you sort of get your tissue moving and stuff like that. If you can't work out, Without hugging your foam foam roll in the corner for 15 minutes, any day, all the time. Number one, it's not therapeutic because it's not creating a sustainable change. You're becoming addicted to unnecessary soft tissue. You know, you got a hydration, nutrition, rest regeneration, or biomechanical problem. So that foam roll should be something you visit periodically. If it is a necessary part of your workout, it's an enabling tool and you're slowly going downhill. That foam roll may be slowing it down, but it ain't going to stop it. Well, and some of the you, you talk about enabling, and a lot of the
1: elite runners, that's all they're really going to do because that's all they do is they they just run. So we get into these, you know, competitive runners, the higher level, the you know, what a lot of people may aspire to do. A lot of the recreational runners maybe maybe look at a train for a marathon or go beyond that, and that's a, that's a pretty tough thing to do. And I think too often that's all people do is they just get that mentality that they just run, and that's okay. To a degree, but you've got to sprinkle in some other things. And if you're, all you're doing is hugging that foam roll, as you said, so you can go run, then you're missing something.
2: We had a, we had a broken biathlete. That's, that's a triathlon without swimming. And, and he was a, a, a patient cause he was getting some epidurals in his back. When I was doing his exam, uh, I'm like, dude, where'd your glutes go? You look like a frog from behind. I mean, you got these legs, but your, your back just ends at a butt crack. There's no butt there anymore. And we literally started reconstructing him based on his movement screen. We wound up with an exercise that really challenged him, a single leg deadlift. Doing that not only got him out of back pain and made him not get another epidural, he was in that transition age class where he was getting ready to be in the youngest part of an older group. He went and won a world championship. And bested, I think, two age groups below him simply because he was the runner who embraced, I'm not becoming a weightlifter, but now I'm using resistance training to become a better, more durable runner. Yeah, and it
1: it wasn't, let's be honest, Gray Cook didn't create that. Hell no. Right? Oh, can you say that? Greg could that you no, didn't do something? No, I was the janitor. I wasn't even the teacher there. I swept right. up That's, the floor and let the lesson plan do what was supposed at to At that level, there's a lot of genetics
2: in there, right? I mean, if you're
1: he at that was already low, good. Yeah, but you're already he was good. so
2: good. He got in that thin slot of eliteness that you said where he wasn't playing tennis, he wasn't doing cross training, he was running. And if you do that solitary thing, the one thing I can tell these elite people that can't do anything else anymore is, unless you get hit by a car when you're running, you're going to die long after running is taken away from you. So if you don't have some other physical engagement, you're going to be pretty depressed for the last 10% of your life. But it's, it's still, it's that dialing
1: dial it in. It's like, a, it's like a Formula One race car. You don't need to do a lot. It's already a race car. Yeah, You just got to make sure it can finish the race. And that's really what we're talking about when you talk talking about this, these elite runners out there who are looking at the ultra marathons and looking at the next, what's the next thing? Okay. I did a marathon. What's the next thing? What's the next thing? Right. And I think at that level, once you become that good at your sport, and we're talking about running today, it's not so much that we're going to take you off and say you can't run or you shouldn't run, and running's great, but you've got to dial it in so you can do that next thing. And I think that's another art and science to what we do.
2: When, when I say I, we, professionals. When I walk in my exam room with the iPad and whatever I'm going to do, I have two categories I put an elite runner in, and I've I've seen people at all different levels running is their life or they're a runner with a life. And if running is your life, I'm going to find a lot of uncovered problems, but your talent is keeping you at a level, but you're not going to be there long. And then I find a runner Who has four other physical things they do to just flush the system and stay balanced out? I mean, we love the NFL quarterbacks that play golf and do a few other things because they have other ways to physically appreciate their body. They're still competitive, but running is your life or you're a runner with a life. And those, I hadn't have to handle those situations two different ways. And unfortunately, if running is your life, if you will accept the slice of humble pie and say, okay, running's my life, then this is everything I gotta tell you to keep running. And some of that is let's run less, let's do some qualitative stuff, let's get at least one contrasting activity. And one time I was working with a hockey player and he goes, I do cross train. See, I do the slide board. And I'm like, that's just speed skating without skates. That's, not a, that's just the same thing on a different surface. You've got to have a contrasting movement pattern. And one of the things that Greg Rose and I talked about is how many PGA professionals now get to a golfing event a day early so they can go paddleboarding. It doesn't look anything like the golf swing, but it embodies balance, core control, cadence, and it's in an environment where reporters and fans can't get to you. Jesus, that is cross-training. You know? So, and and so they either the runners that can accept that contrasting suggestion are already self-aware enough to keep themselves in balance. And the ones who goes, Well, how's that going to cut into my running? Hopefully a lot. Until you can, you know, run again. And so you're either running is your life or you're runner with a life.
0: So when it comes to running and adding in some cross training, as you would say, what, what other activities would you say are an example?
2: I, I had a physician a long time ago in my career that was a very accomplished marathoner, and he wanted to get into a sport where it was long distance canoeing. And it was like called border to border. I think they crossed the state of Minnesota or Michigan or something. But basically, you take a canoe and you run through the woods and dump it in a lake and paddle your ass off with your partner. And then you shoulder the canoe and run through the woods. Well, running through the woods and running on a nice level running trail or two different things. So this physician came to me, he goes, I think I got the endurance, but I know I'm going to roll an ankle because you're running, you know. Uh, So I said, we're going to balance beam and jump rope. And the guy couldn't jump rope. He was an accomplished marathoner, but he couldn't jump rope. And so that was enough. I, I didn't, I didn't need to get him in a weight training thing or a boot camp or anything. He couldn't jump rope, but there's, so, you can slouch and run, but you can't slouch and jump rope. And a lot of people know, know that boxers can do both. They've got this unbelievable posture and they can do things, but jumping rope actually is a postural corrective exercise and also teaches you how to use gravity, not have gravity abuse you. So I'm like, you need to know where your feet are when you're not looking at them. And since a tree root or an income Klein or a you know, bevel and they did great, but it was like my brain just said, I gotta get this guy way more aware into his feet. He's a diesel that likes to just run straight forever. And that ain't what this race is gonna be. So jump rope and balance beam and both humbled him. But instead of fighting me on it, he trusted me on it. Month and a half later, I mean, this guy could do on a trail what he used to do on a flat surface and was actually enjoying it, but he had to eat that slice of humble pie. And so, you know, if, if you're big enough to do that, you'll emerge a more versatile runner or a better runner.
0: So what did that training look like as far as the actual jumping rope and being on the balance beam? Was that, you know, a few passes here and there, 30, you know, 30 repetitions, several minutes. I
2: I actually did something that looked a little bit like Tabata before I even knew what that word meant. And he would jump rope in a, um, what does that word mean? Well, it's basically uh, doing a hard set and taking an organized rest break and a hard set and organized rest break. But what we try to do with this guy is I said, I want to do a jump rope test with you. We're going to go 30 seconds. I want to see how many turns you can do in 30 seconds. And if you're not over 30 turns in 30 seconds, you're remedial jump rope. But that's okay because that's where I started, too. And then I said, if that's your best, how long do you have to rest before you can do 45 and 30 seconds again? Because as soon as you can't, we're done. But that three-minute rest break ain't sitting in a chair or texting anybody. It's on a balance beam. You can rest on a balance beam. I didn't, you know, you can fall off. So we rested on a balance beam, and it took him two minutes of recovery to to reproduce 45 and 30 seconds. The first day, we got four sets. The second day, we got six sets. And there was a day of rest in between that. He got to run on his on his days. He didn't do that. But before you knew it, this guy was doing 10 sets. He was doing like, I don't know, 55 turns in 30 seconds. And he was recovering on a balance beam in a minute or a minute and a half. And that's recovering on the fly. And that's the thing nobody trains in athletics is, how do you recover during a timeout? How do you recover after you've faulted a first serve? How do you recover on the fly? And that's where we get them on the balance beam. And instead of telling them to engage their glutes, we teach them how to breathe. And that resets you. And he was, he was recovering quicker and producing better. But the first thing I do on jump rope is I get that best set up front. And I'm like, can you reproduce another one of those? And if it takes you three minutes, that's going to be hard. You know, so what we noticed is his rest breaks took less time before he got more cadence. And then the cadence came. Well, one thing I'll I'll
1: chime in here, Gray, is don't make the assumption. And I'm not talking to you, but describe this. Because a lot of people listening may make the assumption, okay, then all I need to do is jump rope and do some balance beam work on my off days. You still have a problem. Jumping rope is not going to, if you still have an ankle problem or a balance problem, then you still have to figure that out and work yourself
2: into the jump rope and the balance beam stuff. Yeah. And and let me, here's my, I wasn't doing the movement screen at the time. This was pre-Grey Cook movement screen, everything. I just knew this guy had way more cardio than he did mobility, stability, balance, and a sense of body awareness outside of straight ahead running. So I said, what are the two things that are going to mix it up for this guy? but not humble him so much that he won't be challenged. So I knew he'd take the challenge. When he he saw a guy who couldn't outrun him walk on a balance beam way better than him and jump rope way better than him, he just, he took the bait. And, and he, he stepped up and did it, and you know, six weeks later, he's really happy he did. So I did have some tests that said, "I want to do this with this person." If I'd met somebody who had the exact same ability had the exact same goals but couldn't do a push-up, we'd have been doing Turkish get-ups or, or side planks or some type of sun salutation. Just whatever it is that's your weakest link, I'm going to try to put that in a, in a meal that you can consume. <laughs> and not throw up. <laughs> right. And, and that's that's the point I'm trying to make and make sure you expand on that a little bit because not everybody's going to get the balance beam at the jump rope. Exactly. And and you and I've heard that. Hey, uh, can you print off an extra sheet? My wife has low back pain, extra, uh, low back pain. I want her to do my exercises too. And I'm like, she probably got it for a whole different reason than you. So maybe I won't do that.
0: <laughs> so we've been speaking to runners today and we've talked a lot about the population and that that style of athlete. But there's a whole other, you know, side to it. A lot of women get into running because it's fast, it's easy, it's cheap, walk out the door, dad's still at home with the kids asleep, they go out at five in the morning. And I think there's a little issue sometimes that they don't like to talk about or that people just don't talk about. And that is, you know, a lot of women, especially after having children, they, they pee a little bit when they're running. So, you know, do you have anything for that, either suggestion or maybe what's the root cause of that?
2: I've got a few uh, female runners from recreational to elite that discussing whatever physical ailment they had, mostly it was low back pain. But in my history, they said urinary incontinence. And I said, when do you have these episodes? Well, usually when I'm under uh, strain, like cross training or obviously running, but I'm like... You didn't even list that as a problem. They're like, no, it's just... And I'm like, I, I, wore, I had the opportunity early in my orthopedic practice to work with a female therapist that was a pelvic floor expert. And when I've got a female patient that said I have incontinence or it came out in the history and also had low back pain, I'm like... Work with her before you work with me. Fifty percent of the time, we didn't have low back pain by the time they got to me. So the pelvic floor issue must be addressed. But the fact that these females were accepting this mm-hmm. as a burden that they were going to have to hold because they were running—I'm like most
1: people think it's normal. Yeah, you don't you don't think say so. this and that's the way it is after you have. Yeah, it, when
2: it gets too bad, I'll just have my bladder tacked up. And,
1: and, and, or I have a, have a surgery. But there are solutions. I think that's the key, what you're getting at, Greg. There are definitely
2: solutions. I shouldn't use the word solutions. There are ways to help. Absolutely. And the very first way is this is a signal of a problem that's not going to get better by itself. And the pelvic floor is just another group of muscles that can be trained if you know what to do and what's damaging them or making them dysfunctional. Some people will have altered anatomy and we will have to go deeper, but 80% of these problems can be managed or actually resolved just by fixing the movement agenda that they have. And your agenda right now isn't running. Your agenda right now is not peeing on yourself running. And if that means we're going to cut running in half and do a little more yoga, then that's cool. If that means fixing a breathing problem so you use your core and your pelvic floor better, then that's what we're going to do. But this is not something you have to accept.
1: Right. And it's and it's also not one size fits all. I think that's the other thing. Th- this is a situation there. There is there is ways that a professional can give you some advice, but they need to look at the entire system, the the entire person and not just make assumptions that, you know, Kegels are going to be the quick fix. There may be some other things. You mentioned breathing. There are, there are certain exercises, and it may be to a point that they need to get in uh, to the physical therapist or, or a professional that is really good at, at these
2: types of scenarios. Yeah, and, and, and one of the most practical ones I heard, and it sounds a little humorous, but if, if, honey, if you're going to sit down and take a pee, try to cut off your stream four times. And and it sounds like a challenge, but in a week, they're like, I can do it. And guess what else? I ran two miles and and I'm like, you're now in touch with a muscle that you didn't realize you actually had control of and you will gain conscious control and then all of a sudden subconscious control. And so as we see that, just because we did that doesn't mean single leg stance got better. But it's nice to work on that while we're working on single leg stance. And those two puzzle pieces will put themselves together if we acknowledge and bring them to the surface. But the fact that the the few runners I saw didn't even mention this as a problem. They were mentioning pain. Awareness. Yeah. It's the awareness factor that you talk
1: a lot about is if you can get that awareness and realize, like you had, you had that conversation. And I think for a lot of the... You know, whether they're novice runners or whether you're a professional listening to us today, just understand that, that you've got to address that. That's the first step. Just figure out you got to address it and there's ways to address it. And as you said, just, hey, cut off your stream of pee, see how that does. That's a simple, simple piece of advice. And if you don't have some success
2: with that, then take the next step, maybe seek somebody out. Yeah, because I've heard people say, I tried what you said and I can't do it. And I'm like, relax and keep trying. And and give them permission to, uh, don't train with this. Just play with this for a while. And, <laughs> and before you know it, you'll actually gain a level of control you didn't know you could gain. I'll let that go. I'll just let that slip <laughs> <hit them> <laughs> by. But isn't that the difference in a functional and structural problem? It's not going to work for everybody and they may have a structural problem, yep. but you can always adjust function and get feedback so much quicker than before you try to, like you said, one size fits all or say, yeah, this is a problem everybody has and I guess I'm just going to have it. No, no, you're not.
0: That'll do it for this episode of the Movement Podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please take a minute to subscribe, share, and review. If you want to learn more about our system and take the next step in your movement journey, visit us at movementpod.com. Until next time, remember to first move well, then move often.